Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. The world is full of magic and wonder, if you know where to look. And I'm obsessed with looking for it. I'm Simon Sinek, and I host a podcast called A Bit of Optimism. Each week, I have a short conversation with someone who inspires me or teaches me something about life, leadership, and other curious things. I hope you'll join me on the journey. Listen to a bit of optimism on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here. This season on Revisionist History, we're looking at the dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood wants to hear. One that describes the purgatory where once promising scripts go to die. Development hell. I called up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them to pitch me a project that broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good, and you can hear some of them on Revisionist History. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jacob Goldstein. I used to host Planet Money. Now I'm starting a new show. It's called What's Your Problem? Every week on What's Your Problem, entrepreneurs and engineers describe the future they're going to build once they solve a few problems. I'm talking to people trying to figure out how to do things that no one on the planet knows how to do, from creating a drone delivery business to building a car that can truly drive itself. Listen to What's Your Problem on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode from the midweek edition of the Coin Bureau podcast. Every week, I pick out two of my favorite videos from Coin Bureau's YouTube channel to present to you in podcast form. The audio you're about to hear is from those videos I've chosen this week, and I hope you enjoy listening. The fallout from the collapse of FTX and Alameda Research continues to dominate the crypto headlines and is likely to do so for some time. There are well-founded concerns that the contagion from this disaster could spread to other crypto companies and projects in due course. One project that could be most at risk is Solana, thanks to the fact that FTX and Alameda were its biggest investors. Solana is, or rather was, FTX's de facto exchange chain too. The project is therefore uncomfortably exposed to the fallout, and Sol's price has already crashed much harder than most other cryptos. It's not just Solana itself, though. The projects in its ecosystem are also at risk, which means a lot more pain is coming for them, for Solana, and for the crypto market as a whole. 
So here's a breakdown of what Solana's all about, why it's so threatened by FTX's collapse, and why there may still be hope for the future. Next up, it's mercifully time to move away from crypto for a while and look at something happening in the wider world. Aging populations in the West and elsewhere mean that Africa is projected to become increasingly influential in coming decades as it reaps a demographic dividend from its higher birth rates. As well as young working-age people, the continent is also rich in other resources too and as such is attracting increasing amounts of investment from countries looking to capitalize on its riches. One country has been more proactive than any other in this regard, and that is China, which has invested billions of dollars across Africa as part of its Belt and Road Initiative. An increasing amount of Africa's infrastructure has been built using Chinese money, and naturally, China's influence across the continent has grown with every railway laid and airport terminal built. But, as some nations have discovered to their cost, Chinese money can come with some unpleasant strings attached, and many are worried that the ultimate cost of China's largesse may be greater than what many in Africa bargained for. In the second part of today's episode, you'll hear the story of China's own scramble for Africa, how it's gone down with Africans themselves, and what the future might hold. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and there'll be more coming your way soon. And if you want even more content from Coin Bureau, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channels and visit us on social media too. And one more thing. This year at the Coin Bureau, we're celebrating Black Friday with up to 50% off items in our merch store. There's a link in the description of the podcast, so please do check it out and see if there's something you fancy. The collapse of FTX and Alameda Research has done serious damage to the crypto market, and it seems that Solana was one of the most affected crypto projects. Now, this makes sense given that Solana was the de facto exchange chain of FTX and that both FTX and Alameda were big investors and participants in Solana's ecosystem. Today, I'm going to give you a quick recap of Solana, tell you what's been going on with the project, and examine whether Sol will survive the FTX Alameda meltdown. I want to start with some transparency, and that's that I no longer hold Sol as part of my crypto portfolio. If you're subscribed to my weekly newsletter, you'll know that Sol accounted for almost 8% of my portfolio until last weekend. Note that you can find the link to my weekly newsletter in the description. Now, my decision to sell Sol was based on many factors, including the current state of the crypto market, but there is no denying that the FTX Alameda situation was top of mind for me. Now, I must also stress that this is not financial advice, it's just my opinion, and you will obviously have yours. That said, I will give both a bearish and a bullish case for Solana in today's video. That's because there does seem to be some hope for Sol on the horizon. It just looks very far away from where I'm standing. That's just my perspective though, and I would love to get yours in the comments section. Now, as many of you will know, Solana was founded in 2017 by former Qualcomm engineer Anatoly Yakovenko. The Solana blockchain was built by Solana Labs, 
which is based in the United States, and its ongoing development is coordinated by the Solana Foundation, which is based in Switzerland. Solana raised $25 million across various ICOs between 2018 and 2020 and raised an additional $314 million from crypto VCs last year. FTX and Alameda Research were two of the largest investors in Solana and were two of the largest investors in Solana's ecosystem, that is, crypto projects building on Solana. This is because Solana's original goal was to become a decentralized alternative to centralized stock exchanges like the Nasdaq. Now, this is a goal that FTX and Alameda founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, could get behind given that his endgame was also to displace the existing institutions with his own infrastructure. Solana's mainnet went live in 2020, and its blockchain is still technically in beta. Recent comments by Anatoly suggest that Solana may soon be entering its alpha stage, which is surprising given that the Solana blockchain continues to experience issues. More about all that later on. Under the hood, the Solana blockchain uses a novel proof-of-stake consensus mechanism that timestamps transactions using a technology called proof-of-history. This consensus mechanism makes it possible for the Solana blockchain to process up to 65,000 transactions per second. Until recently, the Solana blockchain was secured by almost 2,200 validators. Solana's validator count was just 1,850 when FTX and Alameda collapsed. This suggests that FTX and Alameda were running lots of Solana validators. Note that Solana transactions are processed by clusters of up to 150 validators. Now, Sol is the native cryptocurrency coin of the Solana blockchain. Like all cryptocurrency coins, Sol is used to pay for transaction fees. 50% of every transaction fee is burned, with the other half going to validators. Obviously, Sol is also used for staking. Staking rewards are currently around 8% for both validators and delegators with a five-day lockup. There is no minimum stake for validators or delegators, though the hardware requirements for running a validator are very high. Misbehaving validators are also slashed. Staking Sol as a delegator can be easily done using the Phantom browser extension wallet, which also acts as a gateway to Solana's ecosystem. The Phantom extension has been downloaded over 2 million times on Chrome, and DAP Radar's data suggests that Solana's DAPs have at least half a million monthly active users. The focus of Solana's ecosystem was initially DeFi. This was in large part due to FTX, which had its own DeFi project called Project Serum. What's crazy is that the order book-based Serum DEX lay at the heart of Solana's entire DeFi ecosystem, providing liquidity and pricing data to many other major DeFi protocols. To my knowledge, most of Serum's liquidity came from FTX and Alameda. Now, the massive drawdown in the total value locked in Solana's DeFi protocols following Terra's collapse in May therefore suggests that this is when FTX and Alameda started to experience the issues that ultimately led to their collapse. You can learn more about the FTX and Alameda situation using the link in the description. I digress. 
Now, it's barely been three months since I last covered Solana, but a lot has happened since then, and not just stuff that's related to Alameda and FTX. Shortly after our last update, a group of Solana projects announced the creation of a cross-chain messaging protocol. If you watched our Cosmos update from around that time, you'll know the announcement seems to have been a not-so-subtle response to Cosmos's announcement about its upcoming interchain security. To my mind, Solana's subsequent announcement underscored the multi-chain future of crypto. Institutional crypto custodian Fireblocks also announced that it had added support for Solana DeFi protocols and Solana NFTs. In case you missed the memo, Solana was becoming increasingly popular with institutions. This was in large part due to Solana's close relationship with FTX and Alameda. In early September, a crypto project called SUI announced that it had raised $300 million from various crypto VCs. Now, this is significant because SUI has its roots in Facebook's failed digital currency project Diem, aka Libra, just like Aptos, and Aptos is considered by many to be a Solana killer. This arguably makes SUI a Solana killer too. This is in part because both SUI and Aptos are coded in Move, a novel programming language developed by DM's developers. Move is based on the Rust programming language used by Solana, but is much more developer-friendly, or so I've heard. For those who don't know, SUI and Aptos are considered to be Solana killers because they're all backed by the same entities. FTX Ventures was a big investor in both Aptos and SUI, and Aptos co-founder Mohammed Sheikh confirmed in an interview that the project was working very closely with FTX. Fortunately for Solana, Aptos and SUI's exposure to FTX so early on in their development could set them back quite a bit. Unfortunately for Solana, its even higher exposure to FTX could mean that it will be the crypto project that picks the shortest straw. More on that in a moment. Anyways, another Solana-related announcement in early September came from Coinbase, whose cloud division spun up archival nodes for the Solana blockchain. This is significant because Solana's full transaction history was only being stored on Google Bigtable, which made it quite centralised. In mid-September, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler said that proof-of-stake cryptocurrencies could be securities. Although Gary's comment was likely about Ethereum's transition to proof-of-stake, Solana Labs was recently accused of selling securities, that is, Sol, which could put it at risk. At the end of September, the Helium community voted to migrate its peer-to-peer networks from the Helium blockchain to the Solana blockchain. This is something we had predicted in one of our earlier Solana updates. Were it not for the FTX Alameda situation, this would have been bullish for HNT. However, the FTX Alameda situation we're in has made Helium's Solana integration incredibly bearish for HNT, and not just because it's a part of Solana's ecosystem. Back in February, Helium raised $200 million in a funding round co-led by, you guessed it, FTX Ventures. At the end of September, Circle 
also announced that it would be expanding its USDC stablecoin to five additional smart contract cryptocurrencies and introducing its own cross-chain interoperability protocol. Now this is evidence that Circle is moving away from Solana, which is apparently the official chain for USDC. In early October, the Solana blockchain experienced yet another outage. This time, it was due to a misconfigured validator node. For context, most of Solana's outages have been due to spam transactions facilitated by its blockchain's fixed transaction fees, which are extremely low. In mid-October, Aptos announced its mainnet launch, and if you watched our video about the project, you'll know that the launch was pretty badly botched. It still boggles my mind that a project with so much funding and backing managed to make so many mistakes. But hey, let's not go there. At the end of October, a crypto project called Trip Protocol announced it would be creating a decentralized alternative to ride-sharing apps like Uber built on Solana. Now, this is the kind of dApp that could reach serious mass adoption, and it's such a damn shame that it's been set back by recent events. In early November, almost half of Solana's validators went offline after a German cloud service provider called Hetzner banned all crypto companies and projects from using its services. The huge impact this had on the Solana blockchain raised even more questions about Solana's supposed decentralization. Luckily for Solana, this bearish news was quickly overshadowed by all the bullish news that came out of Solana's annual Breakpoint conference in Lisbon. The biggest news was that Google Cloud had begun running a validator on Solana, which logically means that Google had purchased lots of Sol. Google Cloud also announced that it had released software to index Solana's transaction history, which you'll recall is being stored on Google Bigtable. Now, this is significant because Anatoly had mentioned in earlier interviews that it was extremely difficult for developers to analyze Solana's transaction history. Helium also announced that it was building out a mobile network and would be giving out SIM cards with a free 30-day trial to everyone who purchased Solana's upcoming Saga phone. Helium also recently partnered with telecoms giant T-Mobile to increase 5G coverage in rural areas, another great initiative now under threat. Now, the announcement that everyone seemed to miss was that Solana's Neon layer would be launching sometime in December. If you've been keeping up with our Solana updates, you'll know Neon supports the Ethereum Virtual Machine, or EVM. EVM compatibility could supercharge Solana's adoption. As a cherry on top, Circle announced that it would be bringing its recently released Euro stablecoin to the Solana blockchain next year, making Solana the second smart contract cryptocurrency to support EuroC after Ethereum. This suggests that Circle hasn't given up on Solana just yet. And then FTX and Alameda blew up. Not surprisingly, the price of every single cryptocurrency that FTX and Alameda had invested in instantly plummeted. As FTX's de facto exchange chain, Sol was at the top of the list. Sol's price was only the tip of the iceberg, however, as its entire ecosystem also went into crisis mode. Loans were liquidated. Wrapped tokens issued or backed by FTX and Alameda depegged. The total value locked in Solana's DeFi protocols 
fell off a cliff. The upgrade keys for Project Serum and the Serum Dex were revealed to be in the hands of FTX, causing the community to fork what was left of the protocol. Soul holders also feared that nearly a billion dollars of soul set to be unlocked would be sold. Now, their fears were calmed after the Solana Foundation announced it would be postponing the unlock of the 30 or so million soul, once again, though, calling Solana's decentralization into question. To add insult to injury, Google Cloud announced that it will also run validator nodes for the Aptos blockchain and that it had partnered with the project for a developer accelerator program. The timing couldn't have been worse given the circumstances. So, as you can see, Sol's price was holding up quite well until the FTX Alameda situation. Now, this is impressive considering that Sol's supply has increased by around 15 million since August. Assuming an average price of around $30 per Sol, this means Sol experienced up to $500 million of sell pressure. On the demand side, it seems that Solana's NFT marketplaces were absorbing most of this supply shock. Institutional investment vehicles for Sol also still have more than $100 million invested at Sol's current prices. This is scary considering some of these ETFs were seemingly issued with the help of FTX. What's even scarier is that analytics on the Solana Explorer show that transactions on Solana have fallen off a cliff over the last week. The silver lining is that the analytics also suggest the drop in Solana's validate account was due primarily to Hetzner's crypto ban and not the FTX Alameda situation. In any case, it's clear that the demand for Sol is down, and it's easy to understand why. Some have begun to question Solana's future. And this is in large part due to the massive amount of Sol that FTX and Alameda will be forced to sell when the time comes to compensate their creditors. According to the Coindesk article that kickstarted the concerns about FTX and Alameda's balance sheets, Alameda held roughly $1.2 billion of Sol in June. Assuming the price was around $40 per Sol at the time, this works out to around 30 million Sol held by the market maker. As for FTX, recent leaks suggest the exchange held around $1 billion of Sol as of a few weeks ago. Assuming an average price of around $33 per Sol, this means that FTX held an additional 30 or so million Sol. Now, it's not clear how much Sol FTX and Alameda currently hold. For what it's worth, these numbers are consistent with the recent disclosures by Solana Labs and the Solana Foundation about their exposure to FTX and Alameda. Solana Labs and the Solana Foundation sold a total of 58 million sold to FTX and Alameda over the course of more than two years. At current prices, this sold is worth roughly $900 million and accounts for more than 15% of Sol's total supply. While not all the sold held by FTX and Alameda is liquid, the fact of the matter is that it will inevitably be sold at some point as part of their bankruptcy proceedings. As I mentioned a few moments ago, Sol managed to survive half a billion dollars of sell pressure over the last three months. However, this assumes that the 14 million Sol that entered circulation were sold, which is unlikely. 
This means that Seoul may not be nearly as resilient to cell pressure as it seems. More importantly, the demand for Seoul is not nearly what it was even just two weeks ago. This could make it difficult to absorb the hundreds of millions of dollars of cell pressure that's coming, and that's just from FTX and Alameda. There are certainly other institutions and retail investors who will sell their soul. Never mind all the promising Solana projects that will die because of their exposure to FTX and Alameda. To make matters worse, the bottom of the crypto bear market probably isn't in yet. This means that Sol will go lower, even without all the sell pressure from these entities. Its long-term price chart suggests Sol could fall to $8. This would be consistent with the estimated percentage loss in other large alts. Now, if you're wondering how long this crypto bear market will last, be sure to check out our video about that from a few months back. I reckon it still holds true, and we'll be doing another video about the potential catalyst that could take us out of the crypto bear market lows in the next week or two. So stay tuned. Now, whether Sol will ever rally back to its all-time highs and beyond depends on the project's upcoming milestones. These can be found in an October blog post on the Solana GitHub and in interviews with Solana founder Anatoly Yakovenko. The October blog post in question is called, quote, Solana Network Upgrades, and it appears to have been published in response to the outages Solana had experienced earlier that month. The next milestone on the list is the introduction of different fee markets for different types of transactions. After that, Solana will be increasing the size of the blocks on its blockchain. This should make Solana even faster, but it will likely make its blockchain even more centralized and could further compromise its security as a result. More about the trade-offs of TPS using the link in the description. The third milestone noted in the blog post is compact vote state, which can be simply understood as reducing the size of certain transactions. This could further increase Solana's TPS while protecting against some of the centralization and security issues that could arise from the block size increase. Now, what's funny about these milestones is that they're eerily similar to Aptos's milestones. Aptos is currently working on implementing different fee markets for different types of transactions. Solana's inspiration doesn't stop at transactions either. That's because a repository on the Solana GitHub suggests that it's looking to make it possible to build on its blockchain using the Move programming language. This is significant because the difficulty of building on Solana has been one of the project's biggest drawbacks. The Solana GitHub also contains many repositories related to on-chain governance, something that's been in the works for a while. Now, I don't imagine Solana is in a rush to roll out its on-chain governance now that a significant chunk of Sol's supply is in limbo via FTX, Alameda, and other affected crypto VCs. Speaking of which, Anatoly dropped a bombshell about Solana's development during a panel discussion at the project's aforementioned Breakpoint conference earlier this month. He basically said that he will consider Solana to be out of beta once a second validator client has been completed. Now, this is huge news that seems to have flown under everyone's radar because of the FTX Alameda situation. To be fair, Anatoly only said that he would consider Solana to be out of beta at that point, 
not that it necessarily would be. Even so, it's the closest thing we've got to an alpha timeline thus far. The thing is that Solana still seems to be unreliable, and its blockchain and especially its ecosystem seem to be in a more vulnerable position than ever. This makes it hard to understand how Solana could be considered complete when it's still experiencing so many issues. This brings me to my concerns about Solana, and my first concern has to do with Solana Labs and the Solana Foundation, specifically their balance sheets. The blog post detailing their exposure to FTX and Alameda suggests that the Solana Foundation only has around $100 million of cash on hand. In case you're wondering, the foundation only had around $1 million of cash on FTX when it collapsed. However, it had $200 million worth of FTT and SRM sitting there. These tokens are now essentially worth nothing, along with the 3.2 million shares of FTX the foundation also holds. Frustratingly, the blog post didn't reveal how much runway Solana Labs has, but Anatoly mentioned on Twitter that it has enough money in the war chest for another 30 months or so. Anatoly specified that this runway is in dollars, which begs the question of how much soul Solana Labs holds. Anatoly also confirmed that Solana Labs had no assets on FTX, which is certainly good news. The bad news is that FTX and Alameda were the primary money funnel for the Solana ecosystem. What's more is that Solana's association with FTX and Alameda could make its ecosystem unattractive to other VCs. What this means is that the Solana Foundation and Solana Labs might be the only entities willing to invest in Solana's ecosystem for a while, and the cash they currently have on hand won't be nearly enough. This means they might have to start selling Sol, which would cause its price to fall even further. This relates to my second concern, and that's regulation. As I mentioned earlier, the SEC is watching proof-of-stake cryptocurrencies very closely, and Solana Labs is already involved in a security suit. The fact that the SEC and others are now investigating FTX means that Solana could come under additional scrutiny. Now, my final concern about Solana is straightforward, and that is competition. Anatoly admitted in an interview that the Solana team is anxious about Aptos and Sui because of how developer-friendly they are. Aptos and Sui also have an absurd amount of big tech backing due to their DM origins. There are also other smart contract cryptocurrencies like Polkadot, Near Protocol, Avalanche, Cardano and Ethereum, which are fundamentally fighting for dominance of the same critical crypto niche. These crypto projects aren't nearly as exposed to FTX and Alameda as Solana was and continues to be. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. 
I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Some would call a thought leader. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. No unexplained theories, no mundane lessons, no using 20 words when two will do. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. I'm giving you straight talk, relatable stories, and life lessons through my own experiences and the lens of others. We're not just talking about why financial freedom is important. We're focusing on how you can achieve it too. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done from the streets to the suites. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What does optimism look like? I'm on a quest to find the people who inspire us to dream more and do more. I'm Simon Sinek, and I host a podcast called A Bit of Optimism. I talk to all sorts of people, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to a hairdresser on Instagram who gives out free haircuts to the homeless, from the CEOs of the world's largest companies to the comedy writer who visited the wreckage of the Titanic. I love talking to leaders, artists, authors, and eccentrics about life, leadership, purpose, mental fitness, human skills, high performance, and other curious things. It leaves me feeling wiser, more inspired, and, well, more optimistic. Because after all, this is a bit of optimism. The world is full of magic and wonder, if you know where to look for it. Listen to A Bit of Optimism on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. A little while back, I became obsessed with stories that fell apart. Specifically, Hollywood projects that fell apart and why they did. So I started calling up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them, to pitch me their favorite idea, the one that broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good, and we decided to turn them into a series on revisionist history. We're calling it Development Hell, the dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood ever wants to hear, the one that describes purgatory, where once promising scripts go to die. There's going to be name-dropping, celebrity gossip, endless digressions, a story that was way too shocking for the studios, one that was told from the point of view of an exotic pet, and about the wild ride we went on trying to adapt my book, Blink. I can't wait to share it all with you. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jacob Goldstein. I used to host a show called Planet Money. Now I'm starting a new show. It's called What's Your Problem? Every week on What's Your Problem? Entrepreneurs and engineers describe the future they're going to build once they solve a few problems. How do you build a drone delivery business from scratch? Our customers, they want us to do this unbelievably reliably in the storms, no matter what, and hundreds of times a day. How do you turn a wild dream about a new kind of biology into a $10 billion company? We didn't have a particular technology. We didn't have a way of making money. <laughs> Um, it was a great way to start a company. <laughs> I highly recommend what could, what could go wrong? <laughs> How do you sell millions of dollars worth of dog ramps for wiener dogs in the middle of a pandemic? We're working with 400 influencers, and the majority of them are actually not a person, but it's actually a dog. <laughs> I can tell you right now, the dog ramp guy has some very interesting problems. Listen to What's Your Problem on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
In the race for superpower dominance, resources and influence are the currencies worth accumulating. And this is something that China has been doing for years in a continent many in the West seem to have forgotten about. I am, of course, talking about Africa, home to some of the largest deposits of natural resources in the world, a continent that contains 65% of the world's arable land, a continent that by 2050 will have a quarter of the world's population. Today, I'm going to tell you exactly what China has been up to in Africa and what it could mean for the balance of global power. Before we dive into China's strategy in Africa, it's important to appreciate how important the continent will be in the next few decades. As I mentioned, it's a vast and largely untapped resource for all types of minerals and commodities. Everything from copper to cobalt, gold to diamonds, and aluminium to titanium. For example, according to estimates from the United Nations, Africa is home to 30% of the world's mineral reserves, 40% of the gold, 12% of its oil, and 90% of its chromium and platinum. This map over here is pretty handy, and it shows exactly how resource-rich Africa is. It's color-coded by those countries with the most abundant minerals. All of these resources are important for any country that is looking to continue growing economically. They're even more important at a time when older mines are starting to become exhausted and older wells are running empty. What's perhaps most surprising about this is the fact that Africa only accounted for about 5.5% of the world's total mined minerals in 2019. Those deposits are sitting there waiting to be extracted. And it's not only the mineral wealth that much of Africa is sitting on. Those vast tracts of arable land mean that the continent could become a breadbasket for the world. This is particularly relevant now when you realize how dependent we've become on farmland in regions such as Ukraine and Russia. And finally, we also have to consider Africans' human capital potential. The continent has the fastest growing population in the world. Sub-Saharan Africa's population is expected to double by 2050. This is important because of the fact that population decline is one of the biggest threats the world faces. It's something that Elon Musk is most concerned about, and it's the subject of a video I did recently. That is in the description for you. The point is that countries cannot continue to grow economically if they have declining populations. Hence, as Africa is going to have plenty of new, young people entering the workforce in the coming decades, it can continue its rapid economic growth. By some estimates, Africa is well on its way to becoming a $5 trillion economy as household consumption is expected to increase at a 3.8% yearly clip. This growing population also presents economic advantages for key trading partners. All of these African citizens will be important consumers of products and services and hence will offer strong export demand for countries that have tapped out Western markets. Not only that, but all these people could be potential allies or adversaries based on how they view other countries. In a game of international influence, the more people and countries that you have on your side, the more geopolitical clout you have. So it's quite clear that there are a number of reasons why Africa is a continent which cannot be ignored. And China is now involved in a modern-day, quote, scramble for Africa.
Take a look at this chart over here. This is the total amount of FDI, or foreign direct investment, that China has been sending to Africa over the past 17 years. As you can see, it has gone from a mere $74 million in 2003 to over $45 billion in 2018, although it shrunk slightly during COVID. All of this makes China Africa's fourth largest investor and places it ahead of the United States in this regard. Not only that, but Chinese loans to African countries have totaled $153 billion between 2000 and 2019. More about that in a bit. The vast majority of this investment in and loans to Africa has gone into the development of infrastructure. This is all part of China's so-called Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. For those unfamiliar, this is a global infrastructure initiative unveiled by the Chinese government in 2013. It forms the centerpiece of Xi Jinping's foreign policy and calls for China to play a greater role in world diplomacy. Essentially, it's a strategy to win the hearts and minds of foreign populations. Of course, this is all infrastructure that the Chinese could also eventually use themselves. Now, as of August 2019, 149 countries were listed as having signed up to the BRI. Chinese investments in infrastructure for African countries have been particularly outsized, however. For example, according to this report, in 2018, China provided over 25% of the overall funding contributed towards infrastructure development projects in Africa. And in this 2017 McKinsey report, Chinese firms and construction companies won almost half of all engineering and procurement projects continent-wide. However, while China has been ramping up its infrastructure development on the continent under Z, it's not, in fact, a new phenomenon. That's because China first entered Africa back in the 1970s, and one of its first projects was a railway that connected ports in Tanzania to towns in Zambia. This was done under the leadership of Chairman Mao, and it was the most expensive infrastructure project that China had ever attempted. It was also a godsend to Zambia, which was effectively cut off from seaports further south thanks to the actions of the Zimbabwean government. With this new railway, Zambia could export its copper to world markets, including, coincidentally enough, a fast-growing China. I'll leave a link to the story about the Tazara Railroad in the description for you. It is truly fascinating. Now, of course, infrastructure developments like this and many subsequent ones mean that China has strong ties with politicians and business leaders in the African countries it has been built in. This means that they can enter into mutually beneficial trade agreements which shake up the status quo. According to data from China's customs agency, trade between China and Africa rose to its highest level last year. It increased by 35% from 2020 to $254 billion last year. You can see what that looks like here. Not only that, but China looks set to overtake the EU as Africa's biggest trading partner by 2030. This will be a symbolic moment given that many European nations are viewed by many in Africa as the colonizers of yesteryear, now being overtaken by new colonizers, so to speak. What do I mean by that? Well, it all really depends on the terms that China has attached to much of its infrastructure spending. 
While FDI is great, loans for bridges ain't. And Africa has been racking up quite a number of loans over the past few years. If you take a look at this infographic here, you can see those countries that are most in debt to China. African ones stick out like a sore thumb. Those countries with the highest debt loads were Djibouti and Angola, where the aggregate Chinese debt exceeded 40% of their gross national income. In the case of Djibouti, China holds 70% of its total debt. According to the World Bank and the IMF, these loans are structured more like commercial loans and they have shorter repayment windows. Their conditions are also confidential and they're usually used for the purpose of building infrastructure rather than broader humanitarian goals. Now, of course, I would argue that the IMF and World Bank don't exactly have much right to opine on the matter, but perhaps that's just me. Either way, the point is that when someone owes you money, you have a great deal of sway over them. That's why people have accused China of engaging in what is termed, quote, debt trap diplomacy. Essentially, if you owe China money, you're more likely to dance to its tune, not only when it comes to concessions within your own country, but also on the international stage. For the clearest example of this, you only need to look at how countries in Africa tend to vote on UN resolutions. For example, in 2020, 50 countries issued a statement supporting China's crackdown in Hong Kong. More than half were African. Some African countries have also been silent on China's human rights record in places like Xinjiang. The president of Burkina Faso has stated, quote, Some Western forces hyping up the so-called Xinjiang-related issues are actually launching unprovoked attacks on China to serve their own ulterior motives. That same meeting was attended by the presidents of Sudan and the Republic of the Congo. Or, if you want to take a look at a much more sensitive issue with China, you can see how support for Taiwan has almost completely evaporated across Africa. This wasn't always the case. Back in the 1960s, Taiwan outpaced China in its efforts to cement diplomatic ties with African nations. However, ever since a 1971 vote that denied Taiwan a seat at the UN table, African countries have been switching their allegiances. In 2018, Burkina Faso officially cut ties with Taiwan, and now there is only one African country that retains ties with the island. That's the Kingdom of Eswatini, one which has been underrepresented in Chinese investments and wasn't invited to numerous Africa-China summits. It does make me wonder how long they can hold out. The point is that China knows that these investments, as well as debts, give it a great deal of clout with these countries. But what happens if a country finds itself in a position where it can no longer service its debts? Well, like any hard-up individual debtor, it could lose some of its collateral. Up until a few years ago, the notion that a nation-state would seize another country's key infrastructure over a bad debt was laughable. However, this happened a few years ago when China took over the Hambantota port in Sri Lanka. This was a port built by the Chinese with debt financed by Chinese banks. When Sri Lanka struggled to repay its debt, it was forced to hand over the port on a 99-year lease. More about Sri Lanka's economic woes in the description. So, 
Given Sri Lanka's experience with bad Chinese debt, African countries are naturally beginning to worry too. You only need to take a look at the number of Chinese-built ports around the world and where they are concentrated. The alarm over this was raised three years ago in Kenya, for example, by the country's Auditor General. He said that Kenya could be made to surrender control of its port in Mombasa if it defaulted on a $3.6 billion loan from China used to build a railway. It's not just ports either. Quite recently, there were concerns that China may attempt to grab Uganda's sole international airport. This was due to the fact that China had extended a $200 million loan to expand the facilities there. A parliamentary probe in Uganda concluded that China had imposed onerous conditions on the loan, including potential forfeiture of the airport in case of default. The Ugandan finance minister was hauled before parliament and grilled about the loan. He apologised profusely and said, We shouldn't have accepted some of the clauses, but they told us you either take it or leave it. Whether that is indeed the case is hard to tell. The Chinese, for their part, have adamantly denied the claim that they were attempting to seize the airport. Moreover, the concerns that were raised about the Mombasa port appeared to be as a result of a misunderstanding over a key clause in the contract. And, as of yet, China still hasn't seized any African infrastructure. However, concerns do remain. Now, remember that chart I showed you about how indebted Djibouti was to China? Well, it turns out that China has been investing heavily in the country. This has been happening ever since China's People's Liberation Army, or PLA, established its first and only overseas military base. China is said to have spent $590 million on both this military facility and the Doala multi-purpose port, the deepest port in East Africa. The port is also of great strategic importance given its location. It sits on the Horn of Africa and near key shipping routes. More recently, a Chinese company agreed to finance Djibouti's port revamp in a $350 million investment deal. The company already owned 23.5% of the port, so this could be a further ploy to embed its influence. Given the parallels that this shares with the Sri Lankan port prior to its seizure, you have to worry. Let's also not forget that military base near the port, one that the Chinese seem dead set on keeping in place. Either way, the prospect of infrastructure seizures or more onerous concessions will always dog those African countries that have taken on Chinese debt. OK, so that's a concern that many have with Chinese engagement in Africa. But what do Africans themselves think of this? And are these characterizations by the Western media fair? Most Africans view China in a positive light. For example, a survey last year of 34 African countries by Afrobarometer, a research group, found that 63% of the respondents thought China had a very or somewhat positive influence. The US, meanwhile, only scored 60%. Quite surprisingly, the African Union has a lower rating than both countries. The Economist magazine also conducted a similar survey earlier this year where the majority of the respondents thought China had a good rather than a bad influence. And in another survey by the Ichikovitz Family Foundation, the vast majority of African youth see China as the most influential player on the continent. 
This survey targeted 4,500 younger Africans between the ages of 18 and 24. It's also important to note that U.S. influence in the minds of these citizens has also dropped over the years. China's impact on the continent was also seen as more positive than that of the U.S. According to the survey's authors, quote, young Africans are telling us that they are seeing tangible, visible, and very impactful signs of the role that China has played in the development of Africa. This is all quite telling. It shows that, despite the concerns in the Western media about China's intentions in Africa, African people themselves still view China as a friend rather than a foe. That is interesting in itself, but it also shows that mistrust of the West runs deep in Africa. China is definitely not making these investments for charitable purposes, but as long as local citizens see some of the returns from said investments, it's an improvement on the status quo. So, what if China is funding the construction of an airport or a road? It's better, surely, than not having them at all. Let's also not forget that the IMF and World Bank have a really shoddy record when it comes to growth and development. I talked about this in my video on the IMF, which I'll leave in the description for you. Moreover, I happen to think that the often patronizing way in which Western governments, media, and other organizations portray Africa could play a factor in these surveys. Africa is sometimes made out to be a somewhat hapless place that's unwittingly being taken advantage of by ruthless foreign governments—an image that many Africans doubtless take issue with. African leaders also want to make it clear to Western governments that they have no option but to deal with China on account of the lack of engagement from the West, and they have a point. Despite this, though, it's encouraging to see that many Africans do also have a healthy dose of skepticism when it comes to China. According to that aforementioned Afrobarometer survey, the majority of the respondents are concerned about being heavily indebted to China. And say that their governments have borrowed too much money. The respondents also think that China's influence is on the decline. The proportion of Africans who said China's economic activities in their countries have some or a lot of influence on their economies has declined over the past five years, from 71% to 59%. But if China continues to be viewed more favorably by Africans than the West, Then it will be well positioned to take advantage of a continent that is poised to become a global powerhouse in a few decades' time. Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Some would call a thought leader. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better. I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. No unexplained theories, no mundane lessons, no using 20 words when two will do. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. I'm giving you straight talk, relatable stories, and life lessons through my own experiences and the lens of others. We're not just talking about why financial freedom is important. We're focusing on how you can achieve it too. We all might have different starting points and end goals. But as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done. From the streets to the suites. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. What does optimism look like? I'm on a quest to find the people who inspire us to dream more and do more. I'm Simon Sinek, and I host a podcast called A Bit of Optimism. I talk to all sorts of people, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to a hairdresser on Instagram who gives out free haircuts to the homeless, from the CEOs of the world's largest companies to the comedy writer who visited the wreckage of the Titanic. I love talking to leaders, artists, authors, and eccentrics about life, leadership, purpose, mental fitness, human skills, high performance, and other curious things. It leaves me feeling wiser, more inspired, and, well, more optimistic. Because after all, this is a bit of optimism. The world is full of magic and wonder, if you know where to look for it. Listen to A Bit of Optimism on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. A little while back, I became obsessed with stories that fell apart. Specifically, Hollywood projects that fell apart and why they did. So I started calling up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them to pitch me their favorite idea, the one that broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good, and we decided to turn them into a series on revisionist history. We're calling it Development Hell, the dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood ever wants to hear, the one that describes purgatory, where once promising scripts go to die. There's going to be name-dropping, celebrity gossip, endless digressions, a story that was way too shocking for the studios, one that was told from the point of view of an exotic pet. And about the wild ride we went on trying to adapt my book, Blink. I can't wait to share it all with you. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jacob Goldstein. I used to host a show called Planet Money. Now I'm starting a new show. It's called What's Your Problem? Every week on What's Your Problem? Entrepreneurs and engineers describe the future they're going to build once they solve a few problems. How do you build a drone delivery business from scratch? Our customers, they want us to do this unbelievably reliably, in the storms, no matter what, hundreds of times a day. How do you turn a wild dream about a new kind of biology into a $10 billion company? We didn't have a particular technology. We didn't have a way of making money. (laughs) Um, It was a great way to start a company. (laughs) I highly recommend it. What could go wrong? (laughs) How do you sell millions of dollars worth of dog ramps for wiener dogs in the middle of a pandemic? We're working with... 400 influencers, and the majority of them are actually not a person, but it's actually a dog. (laughs) I can tell you right now, the dog ramp guy has some very interesting problems. Listen to What's Your Problem on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT AT&T who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, 
the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, time for a few of my thoughts on China's scramble for Africa. It's quite clear that Africa is going to become one of the most important, if not the most important continent in the not-too-distant future. Therefore, it makes logical sense for China to be positioning itself to make the most of the opportunities there. China cannot continue to power its economic engine unless it has the resources to buy goods as well as the buyers to consume them. It also needs to curry favour with countries around the world, especially at a time when it's vying for allies against Taiwan. And its initiatives on the continent have had a great deal of success. This is reflected in the growth of Chinese trade and the favourable perceptions the citizens of Africa have of China's influence. However, practices that threaten to entrap countries into debts they cannot pay back threaten to stain that reputation. This is something that China seems to have appreciated more recently, and it has in fact forgiven the debt of a number of African countries. I also think that African countries have a healthy scepticism about these loans and Chinese involvement more generally. From the era of European colonialism to the IMF, World Bank and USSR in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, they know that other countries have long been eager to feed at their trough. But if they're able to craft deals and agreements with the Chinese that give them infrastructure and trade that they wouldn't have with the West, then they are in a strong position. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. And for the West's part, It should also try and engage more with Africa. But it shouldn't be with the same playbook that many Western countries used in the past. Moreover, viewing Africa as a victim of exploitation isn't flattering, and trying to present yourself as the white knight who can save it is insulting. Quite simply, global superpowers should treat Africa as they would like to be treated. They should show its leaders respect on the world stage and foster mutually beneficial relationships that can take advantage of its growth. It could be an investment that pays off handsomely in 30 years' time. Thank you so much for listening to the Coin Bureau podcast. If you'd like to learn more about cryptocurrency, you can visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash coinbureau. You can also go to coinbureau.com for loads more information about all things crypto. You can follow me on Twitter at at coinbureau, all one word. And I'm also active on TikTok and Instagram too. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Now, every Thursday, My newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. 
We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The world is full of magic and wonder, if you know where to look. And I'm obsessed with looking for it. I'm Simon Sinek, and I host a podcast called A Bit of Optimism. Each week, I have a short conversation with someone who inspires me or teaches me something about life, leadership, and other curious things. I hope you'll join me on the journey. Listen to A Bit of Optimism on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. This season on Revisionist History, we're looking at the dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood wants to hear. One that describes the purgatory where once promising scripts go to die. Development hell. I called up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them to pitch me a project that broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good, and you can hear some of them on Revisionist History. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 